We are continuing along the chronological life of Jesus. We are in Matthew chapter 25. And we read about Matthew, we read this portion last week and covered it in detail. And I told you that, that uh, so this is again, this is still the last Tuesday of his life. He's giving this, and this is the last portion in the Olivet Discourse. And we related this portion to ourselves <clears throat> and how this could speak to ourselves. But I told you the real context of this portion is the judgment of the Gentiles for how they treated Jews during the second half of the tribulation. During that tribulation period where there was such persecution, this is directly relates to that. And I'll show you how we know that from the prophet Joel. But just for, for, so that we can recall, let's just read a few verses from this. Matthew chapter 25, reading from verse uh, uh, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, so Matthew 25:31. when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left. And so then as we, as we scroll down, if you, if you look down uh, at, at, um, in verse 39, it says, When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. This is the judgment period for the Gentiles. The Jews have already been judged. This is in the end times. This is after the tribulation. This is this... 75-day period after the tribulation, 30 days of dealing with the Antichrist, 45 days in this judgment period before the, the, the kingdom is established, before a thousand-year reign. It's in this period that this judgment takes place. This is how the Gentiles treated the Jews during this time of tribulation. Now, I want you to turn to the prophet Joel. So, Joel is, is one of the minor prophets and... Uh, uh, so we're going to turn to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3. So this is one of the minor prophets. It's, it's near the end of the Old Testament. Joel. J-O-E-L. The prophet Joel. And we're going to start reading this. And this portion is the judgment of the Gentiles. So we're reading in Joel chapter 3 verse 1. So this is the Old Testament prophecy of what's going to take place at the end of the tribulation period. The New Testament, Jesus gives us complementary details of it. But there are things that are revealed here in the prophet Joel that are not revealed in the, in the New Testament. So the prophet Joel, chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will enter into judgment with them, on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided among the people. So you see here that, that he clearly says, he says that, that, remember, this is not just being poetic. It is very specific. I want you to learn to read the word of God and look at how specific it is and let the Lord begin to speak to you through the scriptures. He says, he says that he's going to restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. That Israel has come back to being a state in 1948 is an amazing, is an amazing thing, surprised everyone. Israel's not going away anymore. This is the beginning of 
building this up, and this is going to last right on through the tribulation period and into the new millennium. And it says that, that I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. I will gather all the nations. This is again, the word nations here is speaking of the Gentiles. In the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, when it speaks of the nations, it is speaking of everyone other than the Jewish people. If you were to look in, in a Hebrew Bible about this, it would say of the nations, it would say goyim. Goyim is this word which means Gentiles. All right? I will gather all the Gentiles. I will bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The Valley of Jehoshaphat is the Kidron Valley. It's on the eastern side of the Temple Mount. It's a valley, and then you go up into the Mount of Olives, which is on the eastern side of the Temple Mount. And it's in that valley, big valley, that the judgment of the Gentiles will take place. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel. In fact, if, if, I, if I look at that in, uh, in the NIV, the NIV says that uh, uh, there I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance and my people Israel. The Gentiles are going to go on trial for how they treated the Jewish people during the second half of the tribulation. This is going to be our topic for today. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded a boy for prostitutes. They sold girls for, what, for wine to drink. For what, you, what have you against me, Tyre and Sidon? And what have the regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, that you might send them far from their homeland. See, I am going to rouse them out from the places to which you sold them, and I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away, the Lord has spoken. And the entire remainder of this chapter deals with the way the judgment is going to take place upon the Gentiles for their treatment of the Jewish people. That's very specifically what it deals with. And he says that I'm going to repay you exactly what you did to my people, I'm going to give it back to you. Remember what it said in Matthew, because you fed me, because you took care of me, I'm blessing you. And those who didn't, he said, cast them into outer darkness. This is the same portion. This is the prophecy, again, in our New Testament, in Matthew chapter 25, is still prophecy concerning the same thing, which hasn't yet taken place. But it will take place. He will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. You don't believe it? You ought to. The scriptures say it. He will restore their fortunes. Now, what will happen with, with, uh, with Houston and with Texas? We have no idea. But Judah and Jerusalem will remain. That we know because the scriptures tell us that. Now, I want you to turn to, uh, to, to, to Genesis. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. The first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, we're going to start reading from verse 1. This is all based upon a promise to a man named Abraham. Why does God do this for Israel? What's so great about the Jewish people? He made a promise to a man named Abraham 
because he had a deep relationship with him. And he made a promise to him, and he's keeping that promise to this day. This is all under the Abrahamic covenant, we call it. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So what he does is he makes three promises to Abram. He hadn't even yet changed his name to Abraham. And he reiterated this covenant multiple times to Abraham and to Isaac and to to Abraham's grandson Jacob. He says, first of all, from you will come a people, a great nation. He says, to this people, I'm going to give them some land. And then he says, God will bless those who bless this people and, and curse those that curse this people. He will bless them that bless this people and he will curse them that curse them. I want you to remember this. You bless the Jews, you will be blessed. You curse them, you will be cursed. And you say, well, come on, that doesn't apply today. It very much applies for today. I want you to have good lives. Very often I tell you this. You obey this word of God, you'll have good lives. You function under obedience to this covenant that he made to Abraham. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And we will begin to see the outworkings of this. This is the covenant that God made. This is his foreign policy to the Gentiles through their relationship with the Jewish people. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 32, the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And we're going to start reading from verse 8. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, He divided all mankind. He set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Isn't that interesting? God set boundaries for human beings. He gave nations boundaries according to the number of the Jewish people. Go figure. Why would He do that? He's God. He does what He wants. You know, I don't sit here and critique what He does. I mean, that's not my place. God did this. God set up boundaries and nations according to the number of the Jewish people. This is the beginnings of His foreign policy. Understanding this whole idea of blessing and cursing and how it relates to the Jews gives us an understanding of history. And you see the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant in history. Turn back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. So we're going to skip on down to verse 10. And I'm going to tell you a number of stories from the Old Testament. This one we're going to read. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. He immediately starts working on his covenant that he just made to Abram. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt... Genesis 12, verse 10. Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my wife will be spared because of you. My life will be spared because of you. And when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was very beautiful. 
And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female goats, male and female servants, and camels. So think about this. Abram goes down into Egypt with his wife because there's a famine in the land, in the land of where Palestine, Israel is now. So he goes into Egypt, and there he t- his wife was really pretty, and he said, you know, if people see you, they're just going to take you away from me and kill me. So just say you're my sister. Turns out she was his half-sister. She had a different mother, the same father. So it was a half-lie. And, and uh, so sure enough, she's taken into the harem of, king Pharaoh, of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they, because he's the brother, they give him camels and all sorts of stuff. Verse 17, But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Pharaoh gave him a bunch of stuff and let him keep it just to take your wife and go. All this affliction has come on my house. This is the beginnings of the outworking. Because if... Pharaoh had Sarah, the offspring could not have come through Sarah. Sarah had to be reserved for Abram. God inflicted pain upon Pharaoh's house. It was curse for curse. You take his wife, I cursed you. That's what God did. He gave it up, and that wasn't even Pharaoh's fault. You know, he was working innocently. But still, curse for curse came upon him. Let's look in, 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 uh, in, in Genesis Genesis chapter 20, Genesis chapter 20, there's another incident very much like this. Genesis chapter 20, it's a, it's a man named Abimelech. Genesis chapter 20, we're going to start reading from verse 1. Now Abram journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev, and he settled between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. Abram said to his wife Sarah, she said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, and he said, Lord, you will slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself tell me she is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against him. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and he called together the servants and he told them these words in in their hearing and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom all this great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely, there's no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. 
Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere. Just say that he is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham to restore his wife Sarah to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given you your brother, uh, given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, here is your vindication before all who are with you, and before all men you are cleared. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The outworking of the blessing and the cursing. You took Sarah, no offspring can come from her. Every womb in all of your land, among all of your wives, is closed. Boom. Curse for curse. He prayed for him. The curse was then broken. This is the beginnings of the outworkings of, of, of uh, the blessing for blessing and curse for curse. But see here we see curse for curse in kind. You want to close her womb from, from bearing Isaac? Every womb in your home will be closed. Curse for curse. There's also blessing for blessing. And I'll start telling you stories from the, from the Old Testament, but you can certainly look here in your own time whenever you like. It's in Genesis chapter 30, starting with verse 25. Jacob... The, the, uh, the grandson of Abram is in, is in uh, Egypt. He's, he's a slave in Egypt. He's put in a house. The name of the man is Potiphar. It, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's Joseph. Let me talk about Jacob. Jacob is, is in this house of Laban. And Laban was an idol worshiper. Though he was related to Jacob, he was an idol worshiper. Jacob served in his house. And even Laban said, God has blessed me because of you. He worked in Laban's house. God blessed all of Laban's flocks because of Jacob being there. Because this Jewish man was working in his home and he gave him a place in his home. God blessed Laban's home because of him. And, and, uh, and then in, in Genesis 39, Joseph, another one of the descendants then, uh, uh, Jacob's son, Joseph, was, it was in Egypt, in Potiphar's home. God blessed Potiphar's home, and it says everything was blessed in Potiphar's home because Joseph was working there. Everything was blessed. When you learn how to capture hold of this, everything was blessed in his home because Joseph was there. You see, this blessing that came, that was passed on down, this continued on. Then a curse came in, in, uh, in Egypt in Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Pharaoh rises up against the Jews. And what he does, this was the first time there was truly an anti-Semitic nation. It was Egypt. It was the first anti-Semitic nation. They came against the Jews and they first put these heavy burdens upon them. And then after that, they said he, Pharaoh said, I want all the male children among the Jews to be killed at birth. As soon as they're born, he, says, he said to the midwives, take the male children and throw them into the Nile River and let them drown. Right at birth. It was now moved into genocide, the first genocidal nation. Then came curse for curse. God brought a number of plagues on Egypt. The last of the plagues was what? Kill all the male children, all the firstborn in Egypt. Every one of the firstborn males was to die. Every one of them. Curse 
for curse. And then he gobbled up the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea. They died how? By drowning in the Red Sea. Curse for curse in kind. Though it took many, many years for this to ultimately happen, it it definitely happened. There was curse for curse in kind. There's 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 another instance in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. The Amalekites. The Amalekites swore war upon Israel. They went to war with the, with the Jews and they said, we will fight with the Jews. And then in the same chapter, in Exodus chapter 18, verse 14, God proclaims war upon the Amalekites. And he says, not just now, I will fight with the Amalekites until they are wiped out from the face of the earth. Every one of their offspring, I will wipe them off the face of this earth. You proclaim war upon the Jewish people, the the children of Israel, blessing for blessing, curse for curse, I will wipe you off the face of this earth. And the same chapter, God proclaimed that. And the outworking of that took many years. 400 years later, in 1 Samuel, he's going to now affect this and wipe the Amalekites off the face of the earth. And he does that. In doing that, Samuel sends Saul to wipe them out. But there was a problem. Living among them was the Kenites. The Kenites were living among the Amalekites. The Kenites had actually blessed the children of Israel when they were coming into the land. They never hurt the children of Israel. Blessing for blessing, curse for curse. 400 years later, God remembers. God remembers the blessing that the Kenites gave the children of Israel. And God told Saul... You go to the Kenites and you tell them to get away from the Amalekites, that you're about to wipe them out, because you shall not touch the Kenites. Blessing for blessing, curse for curse. The Kenites move away, boom, God destroys the Amalekites. Just like that. God destroys the Amalekites. Blessing for blessing, curse for curse. In the book of Esther, the book of Esther, there's a man named Haman. Haman comes against Mordecai, a Jew, wants him hung. He gets provision to get him hung. You'd think that this would satisfy him. It didn't satisfy him. He wants all the Jews killed. Well, guess what happens? Haman ends up being hung on the very gallows he built for Mordecai. The Jews who were going to be destroyed got to, were granted permission to defend themselves against their enemies and they ended up getting a huge amount at the end of that. And as a result of that, they have this holiday which is still celebrated today. It's called Purim. Purim is still celebrated every year today, the Purim holiday, in celebration of this. And uh, Julius Stryker, who was the Nazis, the Nazis' uh, uh, point man for their newspapers for speaking badly about the Jews uh, uh, throughout Europe, when he was there in the Nuremberg trials, when he was led, being led off to be hung, he said two words. Julius Stryker said, Purim, 1946. He well knew. He came against the Jews and he was hanging for it. The outworking of the Abrahamic covenant is shown now in the New Testament. So we're skipping past the Old Testament into the New Testament. There was a a Roman centurion in Luke chapter 7. The Romans were no friend of the Jews. But this particular centurion, one of his slaves was sick. He sent the Jewish leaders to appeal to Jesus on behalf of his slave so Jesus could heal his slave. And the Jewish leaders came to him and said, please do this for this man because he loves our nation and he himself built us our synagogue. This particular Roman citizen, Roman centurion, built the Jews their synagogue. 
His nation hated the Jews, but he himself loved the Jews so much that he built them a synagogue. Jesus hears this. He didn't say, well, you know, I only came for the children of Israel. Boom, immediately Jesus starts walking to his house to heal this, this man's slave. And the man sent another servant. You don't even have to come into my home. Just speak the word and be healed. And Jesus said, done. It's just done. Boom. He healed him immediately. Blessing for blessing, curse for curse. Why did Jesus do this? Because Jesus knew that there was a covenant between his father and a man named Abraham. Blessing for blessing, curse for curse. Of all the Gentiles, who was the first Gentile to receive the gospel? It was a Roman centurion named, named Cornelius. What is it said of Cornelius? It says he was a righteous man and one that feared God and was well spoken of by all the nation of the Jews. He loved the Jewish people. Salvation came first to his home. Of all the Gentiles, salvation came first to the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Blessing for blessing, curse for curse. You love my people, salvation comes not to just Cornelius, but to his whole family came. You want blessing upon your family? Remember, blessing for blessing, curse for per curse upon the Jewish nation, upon the Jewish people. How about the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant in history? Some have tried to destroy the Jews in many ways. The Crusaders took their wives, the Egyptians, uh, 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 like, like the Crusaders took their wives just like Abimelech had done. The Egypt, just like the Egyptians, the, the Spanish Empire tried to kill the sons. Just like the Persians, uh, uh, the, the Germans made anti-Semitism the, the law of the land. Uh, just like the Amalekites, the Arab states have declared total destruction upon the Jews. Spain had it, it, its uh, Spanish edict of expulsion in 1492. And this is actually why Columbus was, was out looking. There were many Jews upon his ship. The Jews had to leave Spain in, in 1492. Many of them died upon leaving. And they had four months to sell all of their assets. And they had to sell them for almost nothing. And they got thrown overboard on ships. Uh, those that went to Portugal, it, it, was, it was the same way, just as bad. But those that got to Turkey were really blessed and, and protected. But... Immediately, as soon as this happened, Spain lost its doctors, Spain lost its scholars, Spain lost its physicians, its bankers, and their economy started to crumble. Every nation south of the United States speaks Spanish, except for Brazil, speaks Portugal. But that tells you how dominant Spain was. And Spain just crumbled right after that. Uh, Benjamin D'Israeli, who was the uh, former prime minister of, uh, of, of England in the 1800s, late 1800s, he is the one, he was a Messianic Jew. He was a Jew who believed Jesus is the Messiah, Benjamin D. Israeli. He is the one that got for, for England the Suez Canal and India, which caused, caused uh, 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 this dominance of, of the United Kingdom, England and the United Kingdom. And this led up to the, the, uh, the Balfour Declaration in World War I eventually that opened up homeland for the Jewish people. This began to be reversed during, just at the beginning of the World War II where, the, Jews did, where the, the British did not let the Jews leave Europe, prevented them from going to Palestine, which trapped them by the Nazis, and that began to be, become the disintegration of the United Kingdom. They immediately lost the Suez Canal. They immediately lost India. You see this outworking. The Germans had built walls through the Jewish towns to wall them off, and then they systematically started to kill them. One of their favorite games was they would take... They would take a Jewish man and they would tell him to go kill another Jewish man. They said, if you don't kill him, we'll kill your family. This was their game, the Nazis' game. It was interesting that for 50 years there was a city 
called Berlin that had a wall set right between it and the Germans were shooting each other as they were trying to cross that wall. Blessing for blessing and curse for curse is working its way out. Uh, uh, four Arab states, Iraq, Jordan, Egypt and Syria proclaimed war on Israel in 1967. King uh, uh, Nasser of, of Egypt said he was going to push the Jews into the Mediterranean so that they could swim back to Europe where they had come from. King Hussein said he was going to move his border right on through to, to, uh, to the Mediterranean. The fourth day into the Six-Day War, when they were attacked, the, 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 uh, it was actually the Egyptians that were swimming across the Suez Canal to get away from the Jewish troops. It was uh, Hussein's border did move, but in the opposite direction and pushed them back uh, and they lost Jerusalem, pushed them back on the other side of the Jordan River. Of those four nation-states, uh, Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, and Syria, that attacked and proclaimed destruction upon Israel, three of those states right now, today, as we live, are in civil war, in the midst of, uh, right now, are just undergoing civil war, and they're killing each other within those countries. Blessing for blessing and curse for curse. And you could say that's so insensitive. I mean, that's the reality of it. That is what's happening. Blessing for blessing and curse for curse. This is the outworking of the, of the Abrahamic covenant in our world today. There's the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant in prophecy and things that are going to happen in the future. We know Russia, the nation of Russia, will attack Israel and be destroyed. They will be destroyed in the mountains in Israel. We know that in Armageddon, every nation on earth will come against Israel and they will be destroyed in, in the, that valley of Armageddon. Where, where uh, uh, that Valley of Jezreel, you can go see this huge, huge valley today, surrounded on three sides by mountains. In that valley is where the destruction will take place. You see this. And so let me just read you a few portions. As, as, as historians have tried to understand Israel and, and uh, its workings, and then we'll bring it back and relate it then also, we'll close in relating it to ourselves. But it says, Books on Jewish history written from a secular viewpoint are generally agreed that Jewish existence is an enigma. Historians with different philosophies of history, such as Oswald Spengler and Arnold Toynbee, find themselves at a loss to explain the Jews. This is pointed out by Max de Mint in Jews, God, and History. Quote, Since the history of the Jews did not fit into Spengler's or Toynbee's system, Spengler ignored them and Toynbee reduced them to an occasional footnote describing the Jews as fossils of history, unquote. A former communist named Nicholas Berdayev writes in The Meaning of History, quote, I remember how the materialist interpretation of history, when I attempted in my youth to verify it by applying it to the destinies of peoples, broke down in the case of the Jews, where destiny seemed absolutely inexplicable for the, from the materialistic standpoint. According to the materialistic criterion, these people ought long ago to have perished. Its survival is a mis mysterious and wonderful phenomenon demonstrating that the life of this people is governed by a special predetermination transcending the process of adaptation expounded by the materialistic interpretation of history. The survival of the Jews, their endurance, their absolutely peculiar condition and the fateful role they played by them, played by them in history, all these points all these point to the peculiar and mysterious foundation of their destiny. Unquote. Mark Twain, in Concerning the Jews, wrote, quote, He could be vain of himself and be excused for it. For the Egyptian, the Babylonian, the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. 
Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? Unquote. Well, the scriptures tell us the secret of the immortality. It's in Malachi 3.6. For I, Jehovah, change not. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, they are not consumed. And, and uh, um, you know, there, there, is, there is one way to destroy the Jews. The Bible actually, actually makes it clear. This is in the book of Jeremiah. There's one way to destroy them. And he makes it clear. And he tells us the way you want to destroy them. This is how you do it. So if you turn to Jeremiah chapter 31... Jeremiah chapter 31, reading from verse 35, is the way to destroy the Jews. God made it very clear. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for night, for light by night, who stirs up the sea and all the waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If the fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also, be, cease, will also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth search out, searched out below, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel. For all they have done, declares the Lord. You want to destroy the Jews? Here's how you do it. First destroy the sun, the moon, and the stars. When you've done that, you'll be able to destroy the Jews. That's what God said. First destroy those, then you'll be able to destroy the Jews. That's how you do it. God gave us this method to do this. I'll tell you from my own experience. So I, I, I go to Israel every three years and I lecture at all the different universities for a month throughout the nation of Israel. That is an amazing nation. You've got seven and a half million people. So not that much larger than the city of Houston. Their territory is less than the city of Houston. They have 180 million people that surround them, that hate them, that don't want them to exist. They have, that little country has more patents in the U.S. Patent Office than any country in the world except the United States. And remember, we're 320 million people. They have, they, they have uh, uh, more companies founded in Israel on the U.S. Stock Exchange than any country in the world except the United States. That place is amazing. It's called the Startup Nation. Just you, you see companies just starting up and birth. How this happens, I don't know. You try to order a chemical there, it can take you six months to get it because they're so worried about people building chemical weapons and things. They, they, they're, they're, everybody, until they're, they're like 40 years old, they have to run off to, to our equivalent of the National Guard for several weeks every year. They, they're serving in the Army for three years, all the men, two years for the women, before they right out of high school, before they get to go to college. And then every few years, there's another war that, that pops up and everybody has to you know, put on their soldiers' uniform, grab their guns and go out to some place. So all these disruptions. With all of that, it's utterly amazing. So what do we do then? What should be our response? And the scripture clearly tells us this. The, this, the scriptures give us what our response should be. That doesn't mean you should always agree with their politics. No way. You don't have to agree with their politics. But here's what we should do. Look in Psalm chapter 122. So the book of Psalms, book of Psalms, um, chapter 122. Psalm 122, and we're going to start reading from verse 6. 
Psalm 122, reading from verse 6. You want to fall into the blessing of Abraham? Here's how you do it. Psalm 122, verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This should be our response. You pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You don't have to agree with their politics. Pray that God brings peace upon that place. Pray for the peace of those people. Pray for their prosperity. See, he says, he says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. In other words, the Bible is proclaiming prosperity upon us who love them. May peace be within your walls. May they prosper who love you. It is, from my perspective, it is impossible to dislike somebody that you're praying for all the time. God gives you this love for them. You pray for those people. You pray for peace within their walls. You pray God's blessing upon them. Even if your nation should come against them. If your nation should speak well of them. If they're doing things that you don't like. doesn't mean that you have to support their politics. But as a people, their offspring of the children, their offspring of Abraham. And there's blessing and cursings upon them. From the book of Genesis into eternity, that blessing was given to them. Its outworking was in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in history after the New Testament, and in the history to come. You will bring great peace upon your lives if you learn not to speak a word against a Jew. Learn to love them and pray for them. It says, may peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. Speak this over them. This is what we are called to do. And remember our Lord's response, who was ultimately condemned, not only by the Romans, but by the Jews, put there through a kangaroo trial, which we'll go over. What did he do from the cross? He didn't lash out against them. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This should be our response, and this will bring great blessing in your life. Great blessing when you understand this. This is what he was talking about in that portion in Matthew. The judgment that was going to come upon the Gentiles, upon their response toward the Jewish people. Let's pray. Abba Father, I thank you so much for your word, for the truth of it. Lord, I pray for these young people that you will so work upon their hearts that they would learn to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord, I thank you that every word prophesied either has come true or will come true concerning that nation. Lord, I pray for these young people that you would set them in their lives in a right way and a right response to fall into the blessings that can come through the Abrahamic covenant. The blessings that can come upon their lives through the Abrahamic covenant. Lord, I pray for your mercies to be upon them. And Lord, I pray for those here that don't know you who are wondering what are all these prophecies? What are all these words? How can this thing be? Father, I pray that you would crucifies this to their hearts and they would cry out, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. Father, I pray that they would not wait, but they would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, call them to yourself, I pray. Glory be to your name. Amen.